Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 On the Creature Called Man Chapter 8 The End of the World Part 1 I was once sitting on a summer day in a meadow in Kent, under the shadow of a little village church, with a rather curious companion with whom I had just been walking through the woods. He was one of a group of eccentrics I had come across in my wanderings, who had a new religion called Higher Thought, in which I had been so far initiated as to realize a general atmosphere of loftiness or height and was hoping at some later and more esoteric stage to discover the beginnings of thought. My companion was the most amusing of them, for, however he may have stood towards thought, he was at least very much their superior in experience, having traveled beyond the tropics while they were meditating in the suburbs, though he had been charged with excess in telling travelers' tales. In spite of anything said against him, I preferred him to his companions, and willingly went with him through the wood, where I could not but feel that his sunburnt face and fierce tufted eyebrows and pointed beard gave him something of the look of Pan. Then we sat down in the meadow and gazed idly at the treetops and the spire of the village church, while the warm afternoon began to mellow into early evening, and the song of a speck of a bird was faint far up in the sky, and no more than a whisper of breeze soothed rather than stirred the ancient orchards of the Garden of England. Then my companion said to me, Do you know why the spire of that church goes up like that? I expressed a respectable agnosticism. And he answered in an offhand way, Oh, the same as the obelisks, the phallic worship of antiquity. Then I looked across at him suddenly as he lay there, leering above his goat-like beard and for the moment I thought he was not Pan, but the devil. No mortal words can express the immense, the insane incongruity and unnatural perversion of thought involved in saying such a thing at such a moment, and in such a place. For one moment I was in the mood in which men burned witches. And then a sense of absurdity, equally enormous, seemed to open about me like a dawn. Why, of course, I said, after a moment's reflection. If it hadn't been for phallic worship, they would have built the spire pointing downwards and standing on its own apex. I could have sat in that field and laughed for an hour. My friend did not seem offended, for indeed he was never thin-skinned about his scientific discoveries. I had only met him by chance, and I never met him again, and I believe he is now dead. But though it has nothing to do with the argument, it may be worthwhile to mention the name of this adherent of higher thought, and interpreter of primitive religious origins, or at any rate, the name by which he was known. It was Louis de Rougemont. That insane image of the Kentish church, standing on the point of its spire, as in some old rustic topsy-turvy tale, always comes back into my imagination when I hear these things said about pagan origins and calls to my aid the laughter of the giants. Then I feel as genially and charitably to all other scientific investigators, higher critics, and authorities on ancient and modern religion, 
as I do to poor Louis de Rougemont. But the memory of that immense absurdity remains as a sort of measure and check by which to keep sane, not only on the subject of Christian churches, but also on the subject of heathen temples. Now, a great many people have talked about heathen origins, as the distinguished traveler talked about Christian origins. Indeed, a great many modern heathens have been very hard on heathenism. A great many modern humanitarians have been very hard on the real religion of humanity. They have represented it as being everywhere, and from the first rooted only in these repulsive arcana, and carrying the character of something utterly shameless and anarchical. Now, I do not believe this for a moment. I should never dream of thinking about the whole worship of Apollo, what de Rougemont could think about the worship of Christ. I would never admit that there was such an atmosphere in a Greek city as that madman was able to smell in a Kentish village. On the contrary, it is the whole point, even of this final chapter upon the final decay of paganism, to insist once more that the worst sort of paganism had already been defeated by the best sort. It was the best sort of paganism that conquered the gold of Carthage. It was the best sort of paganism that wore the laurels of Rome. It was the best thing the world had yet seen, all things considered and on any large scale, that ruled from the wall of the Grampians to the garden of the Euphrates. It was the best that conquered. It was the best that ruled and it was the best that began to decay. Unless this broad truth be grasped, the whole story is seen askew. Pessimism is not in being tired of evil, but in being tired of good. Despair does not lie in being weary of suffering, but in being weary of joy. It is when, for some reason or other, the good things in a society no longer work that the society begins to decline. When its food does not feed, when its cures do not cure, when its blessings refuse to bless. We might almost say that in a society without such good things, we should hardly have any test by which to register a decline. That is why some of the static commercial oligarchies like Carthage have rather an air in history of standing and staring like mummies, so dried up and swathed and embalmed that no man knows when they are new or old. But Carthage, at any rate, was dead, and the worst assault ever made by the demons on mortal society had been defeated. But how much would it matter that the worst was dead if the best was dying? To begin with, it must be noted that the relation of Rome to Carthage was partially repeated and extended in her relation to nations more normal and more nearly akin to her than Carthage. I am not here concerned to controvert the merely political view that Roman statesmen acted unscrupulously towards Corinth or the Greek cities, but I am concerned to contradict the notion that there was nothing but a hypocritical excuse in the ordinary Roman dislike of Greek cities. I am not presenting these pagans as paladins of chivalry, with a sentiment about nationalism never known until Christian times but I am presenting them as men with the feelings of men, and those feelings were not a pretense. The truth is that one of the weaknesses in nature worship and mere mythology had already produced a perversion among the Greeks due to the worst sophistry, the sophistry of simplicity. Just as they became unnatural by worshipping nature, 
so they actually became unmanly by worshipping man. If Greece led her conqueror, she might have misled her conqueror. But these were things he did originally wish to conquer, ever in himself. It is true that in one sense there was less inhumanity even in Sodom and Gomorrah than in Tyre and Sidon. When we consider the war of the demons on the children, we cannot compare even Greek decadence to Punic devil worship. But it is not true that the sincere revulsion from either need be merely pharisaical. It is not true to human nature or to common sense. Let any lad who has had the luck to grow up sane and simple in his daydreams of love hear for the first time of the cult of Ganymede. He will not be merely shocked, but sickened. And that first impression, as has been said here so often about first impressions, will be right. Our cynical indifference is an illusion. It is the greatest of all illusions, the illusion of familiarity. It is right to conceive the more or less rustic virtues of the ruck of the original Romans as reacting against the very rumor of it with complete spontaneity and sincerity. It is right to regard them as reacting, if in a lesser degree, exactly as they did against the cruelty of Carthage. Because it was in a less degree, they did not destroy Corinth as they destroyed Carthage. But if their attitude and action was rather destructive, in neither case need their indignation have been mere self-righteousness covering mere selfishness. And if anybody insists that nothing could have operated in either case but reasons of state and commercial conspiracies, we can only tell him that there is something which he does not understand, something which possibly he will never understand, something which, until he does understand, he will never understand the Latins. That something is called democracy. He has probably heard the word a good many times and even used it himself, but he has no notion of what it means. All through the revolutionary history of Rome, there was an incessant drive towards democracy. The state and the statesmen could do nothing without a considerable backing of democracy, the sort of democracy that never has anything to do with diplomacy. It is precisely because of the presence of Roman democracy that we hear so much about Roman oligarchy. For instance, recent historians have tried to explain the valor and victory of Rome in terms of that detestable and detested usury which was practiced by some of the patricians, as if Curius had conquered the men of the Macedonian phalanx by lending them money, or the consul Nero had negotiated the victory of Metaurus at 5%. But we realize the usury of the patricians because of the perpetual revolt of the plebeians. The rule of the Punic merchant princes had the very soul of usury, but there was never a Punic mob that dared to call them usurers. Burdened, like all mortal things, with all mortal sin and weakness, the rise of Rome had really been the rise of normal, and especially of popular, things and in nothing more than in the thoroughly normal and profoundly popular hatred of perversion. Now, among the Greeks, a perversion had become a convention. It is true that it had become so much of a convention, especially a literary convention, that it was sometimes conventionally copied by Roman literary men. But this is one of those complications that always arise out of conventions. It must not obscure our sense of the difference of tone in the two societies as a whole. 
It is true that Virgil would, once in a way, take over a theme of Theocritus. But nobody can get the impression that Virgil was particularly fond of that theme. The themes of Virgil were specially and notably the normal themes and nowhere more than in morals. Piety and patriotism and the honor of the countryside. And we may well pause upon the name of the poet as we pass into the autumn of antiquity. Upon his name, who was, in so supreme a sense, the very voice of autumn, of its maturity and its melancholy, of its fruits of fulfillment and its prospect of decay. Nobody who reads even a few lines of Virgil can doubt that he understood what moral sanity means to mankind. Nobody can doubt his feelings when the demons were driven in flight before the household gods. But there are two particular points about him and his work which are particularly important to the main thesis here. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>